Now, we've been in a series, for those of you that don't know, maybe it's your first time. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been walking through this letter. It's, a, it's an ancient letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of people living in the first century in the city of Ephesus. And if you missed any of the previous few weeks, I'd encourage you to check those out online. But he wrote this letter, and throughout the first few weeks, he's been sort of outlining for his readers, including you and I, all that God has done for us. The purposes of God being worked out in history. It's this incredible vision that Paul has. He describes how Jesus came to earth, he died and he rose again, and that through him, God is making each of us new. He's making the new you. And then he's making all the new yous come together and he's creating one new group, one new society that we get to be a part of. Humanity that was once alienated from God has been reconciled to God. And humanity that was once fractured from each other has been united together because of Christ. It's this incredible picture that Paul paints. And we've said from the beginning, this letter can really be divided into two halves. Uh, The first half, Paul is describing all that God has done for us. He'd say, you've been chosen and you've been adopted into God's family. And he promises to one day restore all things. And then he would remind us, all of his readers, that none of this is because we can earn it. None of it is because of our behavior or what we have or haven't done. It's because of God's grace. It is because this is who God is. This is what God has chosen to do on our behalf. And because of all that, Paul would say the wall of hostility that exists between us as people has been torn down. And now we're like, we're like one new society, one new group of people who identify as these living, walking, breathing temples of God. We are where God lives in each one of us. And that first half is so important. It's, it's foundational to the entire message of what it means to follow Jesus. And here's why. When you know who you are, then you know how to live. And so the first half of this letter is Paul reminding us who we are, reminding us that our identity isn't found in what we have or haven't done. Our identity is found in what Jesus has done on our behalf, reminding us we don't have to strive to somehow be in right standing with God. We're in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done. And when that message sinks into your heart, you can't help but change how you live. And so as we move into the second half of this letter, we hit this pivot point. The Apostle Paul starts chapter four, the second half of this letter, and he starts it with the word, therefore. And we said this in the beginning, anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And it's there because Paul says, therefore, in other words, in light of everything I've just said up to this point, here now is how we ought to live. In fact, in light of the fact that we've been given this brand new identity, Paul would say, here's what it looks like to live out that identity. Everything in the first three chapters is vertical. Here's what God's done for us. And now he moves to horizontal and says, now here is how we are to treat each other. And the first thing that he writes is a plea for followers of Jesus to live in unity. Isn't it amazing that in this fallen world, uh, you can have people who believe in the same God, who uh, believe passionately in the same mission, but on the journey from here to there, there's a lot of things that can get in the way relationally, isn't there? There's a lot of tension relationally. Uh, We all have a sin nature that causes us to have a natural tendency towards selfishness. We're all kind of born uh, selfish as the default setting. Nobody ever taught us the words no and mine. We just knew those. In fact, you add on top of that the fact that we've all got blind spots. We have this tendency to to see uh, where other people are broken, but we don't see it in ourselves. And, And then you add to that, we all have our own unique preferences and our own unique personalities. And you put all those together. And conflicts 
And disagreements are inevitable in any family, even in the best of families. And it's true in the family of God as well. And so Paul shifts from the vertical to the horizontal, and he starts off with a pretty basic guideline that's probably true in almost any family. Get along with your brothers and sisters. That's the, that's the guideline here. There is not a parent in the world that enjoys when their kids aren't getting along. In fact, there's never been a time where my wife and I were driving somewhere with little kids in the back seat, and they start fighting with each other, and we go, isn't that cute? Look at how he made that little fist. I mean, just, that was great. Oh, she has a, a whole list of things that she's angry with her sister about. Wow, she's such a detailed person. That's just great. We've never thought that, right? In fact, uh, there was one time uh, several years ago when our kids were younger and we had two girls and a boy and uh, we were like, you know what? We're going to go out to dinner. We're going to go somewhere nice, Applebee's. And so we went to Applebee's and, uh, and we're sitting there and it was like, my son is in the car seat and he won't stop crying. You know, he's, he's probably one year old and uh, my, my girls are like, won't stop picking at each other and fighting with each other. And we're just trying to have dinner and it's just like a zoo and there's food flying everywhere and there's people punching each other and you're just like, what is happening? And so my wife and I literally in the middle of dinner just stood up like, we're like, can we just get the bag, like boxes for all this stuff? And we weren't even close to being done, boxed everything up car seat, stroller, uh, you know, diaper bag, get it all together. And we just like walked out. And as we're walking out, in the booth next to us was a group of teenagers. And they were sitting in the booth having dinner, just, you know, minding their own business. And we're walking out and my wife turns to them and says, here's some birth control for you guys. <laughs> and just left. <laughs> because when kids are fighting, and as a parent, is there anything worse than it's just like, come on, can you guys just get along? And, and I think it's probably the same thing for our Heavenly Father when we are at odds with one another. And at the same time, the alternative is also true, isn't it? The reciprocal is true. Is there anything better as a parent than when your kids are getting along with each other? When they're hanging out together, when they're laughing together, when you hear them from the other room and you're like, that's amazing. It's peace. They're not fighting. They're, they're laughing. They actually want to be together. You're like, that's incredible. Now, I know for some of you parents, like, you're in the thick of it right now. It's like you've got young kids, and it's always, you're in survival mode, okay? But hang in there. It gets better. We, we have entered the golden age of parenting. And it's just amazing. Last year, my wife and I went away for a couple of days, and we just told the kids, be back in a couple days. There's food in the fridge. Grandpa lives close. If you need him, call him. It's amazing. And we called my oldest daughter, who is, uh, she's married, and so we just called her and said, hey, you want to just check in on the kids? And she was like, I'm already here. I'm, we brought pizza over. We're hanging out with them. We're having a good time. And we were just like, oh, yes. It's amazing. Uh, uh, several uh, weeks ago, there was one of their favorite bands had an album coming out, and it dropped at like 11 p.m., and so all the siblings went to my oldest daughter's house and, and her husband's house and, and uh, just hung out, and at 11 p.m. had a dance party. And here's what's awesome. We don't have to be there, right, to enjoy it. Like there's, it's like we don't have to be physically hanging out with them, but the fact that they get along with each other is like, great, that's amazing. And I think that's how God feels about us. When, when, when we get along with each other as brothers and sisters, that's why Paul in this section begins with a plea for unity, that as brothers and sisters, we've been adopted into God's family and we've been made new. So we've got to work 
to, to have unity in the family of, of God. But if we're going to have unity, uh, here's a few things we've got to understand. Number one, unity does not mean agreement. We have just messed this up in society because lately, here's what we've done. We've kind of arrived at this point in society and many people where it's like, if you don't agree with me, then we don't have unity. And what in the world? Like, unity is not based on agreement. Paul's plea for unity is a plea to live in peace with each other. It's not a plea for uniformity. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Uniformity means we all think the same and we act the same and we talk the same and we, everything is the same. Whenever we confuse unity and uniformity, we battle to see who wins. It's like uh, in Genesis, it says that the two become one in marriage, but often in many marriages, it's a battle to see which one they're going to become. And so Paul begins this second half of this letter, and here's what he says. Therefore, therefore, in light of all that God has done, you've been chosen, you've been adopted, he's going to restore all things, it's because of his grace, the wall of hostility has been torn down. Therefore, in light of all that, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Therefore, in light of all that God's done for you, in light of the fact that you've been chosen and adopted and made new by God's grace, be humble, be gentle, be patient with each other. Make allowance for one another. The greatest unity we can show isn't when we agree on all things. Anybody can experience unity when you have agreement in all things. But Paul asks us to make allowance for one another because of love. The real test of unity is how we can love one another even when, and especially when, we disagree, when we don't see eye to eye. Sometimes people ask this question, well, if followers of Jesus had unity, then why are there so many church denominations? Right? That's a great question. And the reason there are different denominations is because we don't always see eye to eye on a particular theological point. Sometimes we interpret a specific little nuanced theology a little bit differently. Uh, sometimes we see a specific practice a little bit differently. But the biggest reason people think that churches or denominations don't get along isn't because of our small differences. It's because we talk trash about each other. It's because of the way that we treat one another, not because of the differences themselves. And here's the commitment that you'll hear me make. I will never speak negatively about another church. I'm just not going to do it because... We've got blind spots and they've got blind spots. And the goal is for us to love well, that's the mandate, until one day we all stand before Jesus and he goes, well, you were wrong there and you guys were wrong here. But in the meantime, we're supposed to love well even when we disagree. Our job is to love well because that's what points people to the love of Jesus. And if we would take Paul's direction and be humble and be gentle, be patient with one another, we could have all the denominations we wanted and people would go, wow. Look at those guys. Look at how well they love one another. How awesome that Jesus must be because they have a bunch of differences and yet they love each other really well. This isn't just a denominational thing, by the way. This is a personal thing. Paul has described in this letter all that God has done to remove the hostility between us after the incredibly high price that Jesus paid to put to death the hostility that exists between us. It would be a shame to rebuild that wall simply because we don't agree. That's why Paul says we're to make allowance for one another 
because of our love. Love is what moves us. It's what motivates us to put others ahead of ourselves. That's what does it, to treat others with humility and gentleness and patience, not the false pressure of agreement. Because if our friendship and if our unity is rooted in and based in agreement in all things, that is a fragile friendship and a fragile unity at best. The moment we disagree, unity goes out the window. This isn't about uniformity, all of us thinking the exact same way. This is about conduct, how we treat one another when we disagree, how we treat one another when we don't see eye to eye. And Jesus said, this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples. This is how they're going to know that you follow me. In fact, with his disciples, he said this, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. They're going to know that you're followers of me by the way that you treat one another. In fact, here's how we approach this at Westbridge. Uh, we say in essential beliefs, we strive for unity. That's what we're working towards. Essential beliefs are those core doctrines, those things that are like, here's really foundational to faith. What do we believe about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? And what do we believe about the scriptures and the church and eternity? These are really big core doctrines. And the goal is that we strive for unity around those things. Those are essential beliefs. In non-essential beliefs, non-essential beliefs are those things that uh, aren't essential. They're not core doctrines, but they're things that churches fight over that don't matter in the end. In fact, churches tend to split over non-essential beliefs. Uh, all kinds of different fringe things that change from generation to generation, or they fight with each other over things that don't matter. And so our sort of philosophy here at Westbridge is this. In, in our essential beliefs, we're striving for unity. But in non-essential beliefs, there's liberty. In fact, we can just agree to disagree on certain things because we both follow Jesus. But in all of our beliefs, we show love. In essential beliefs, we strive for unity. In non-essential beliefs, there's liberty. But in all of our beliefs, we show love. That love is the guiding ethic, behavioral ethic for followers of Jesus. Which means uh, we have two really huge policies here at Westbridge. One, mean people don't lead anything. We just think that's a good rule. That if you're mean, you're not in leadership. <laughs> Secondly, conversations are better than policies. That's it. Those are the only policies we have. You have just been handed our entire policy manual. Because love is the guiding ethic, not policies. And so at the end of the day, we can agree to disagree on a whole host of issues and still have unity around those things that matter. And love can guide the way. Now, number two, unity comes from God. We just maintain it. This is the other part when it comes to unity. We, we simply maintain the unity that comes from God. When we talk about unity in the body of Christ, unity in the church, we're not talking about something that we got to somehow conjure up or create. The Apostle Paul reminds us our unity has been given to us and established because we've been given a new identity as part of God's family. And when you've been made new and I've been made new and we've, invited into, we've been invited into this new group of people called the church and the family of God, then that's what unites us. That's the thing that establishes the unity that we share with each other. And so our role is not to create it. It's rather to recognize what we've been invited into and then work to maintain what God has already established. And so the Apostle Paul continues in the next verse and says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit 
Just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. With all of these ones, we shouldn't be divided. In these verses, we can see the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people who have put their trust in Jesus. And you could think about it in these terms. The one Father that's living in all and through all, uh, from him comes one family and one Lord from whom comes one hope and one faith and one baptism and one spirit who abides in one body in each and every one of us. Our unity arises out of the unity that is found in God. It's not something we conjure up or create, but it is our responsibility to maintain. And Paul says it takes effort. It takes energy. We've got to work at it. It's never easy to maintain unity because people rub us the wrong way, right? In fact, uh, I, doing what I do as a pastor, often it's been said like, my job would be so much easier if it wasn't for people, right? It's just the way it is. We have people that uh, sometimes uh, join groups and they jump into a small group and then after a couple of weeks, they jump out of a small group. We're like, ah, those weren't my people. And I get that. That's just normal human stuff. But the reality is this. Unity doesn't come easily. Unity doesn't come easily. It arises out of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it is maintained when we commit to living in peace with one another. That's not a theological position. That's a behavioral position. That's not God asking us to believe something. It's God asking us to live a certain way. It has to do with our conduct. And so Paul says this, in light of all that God's done for you, vertical, make every effort to maintain unity through peace, horizontal. This is how we ought to live based on what God's done for us. And then he would say this, unity is strengthened by the diversity of our gifts. You would think that with the wide array of diversity that we experience in a group like this, that that would actually pull away, that that would kind of cause tension and pull us away from each other. But Paul actually says, no, it's actually in our diversity that we experience incredible unity. Paul continues this section of the letter and he reminds us, God has given each of us specific gifts. He reminds us each of us has a unique role to play as a part of God's family. And now maybe you've never heard this language before. Maybe you're exploring church for the first time, just kind of checking things out. You have been uniquely created by God to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And the body isn't complete without each of us doing our part. And that diversity, the wide array of diversity, that doesn't downgrade our unity. It actually enriches it. It actually upgrades it. It enhances it. And so the Apostle Paul would continue in the next verses and say this. However... He says, however, because he's just got done saying one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one father. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. The the contrast Paul makes here highlights the beauty of how God works. He just gets done telling us there's one God, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one Lord. And then he shifts. He shifts from the picture of all of us to the picture of each of us, which is really how a body or a family or a team works, isn't it? It's 
smaller parts that make up the whole, a bunch of unique parts that make up the entire thing. It's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, you will always be uniquely you, and yet you were created by God to exist as part of the greater whole. There's something that is a bit of a miracle and something that's a bit of a mystery to that. It's how atoms work. Every atom has different parts that make up the whole. Our solar system has different planets that make up the whole. Even your own body operates that way as each part of your body is separate and unique, offering their own contribution, but working and operating within the framework of the whole, the context of the complete individual. Your ear doesn't see, your eye doesn't smell, but only in the context of each member doing its part does the body fully function. Now, here's a couple things to remember as we talk about this. First, God has given each of us a role to play, each of us a special gift. That means you play your role and nobody else's. And what we can do sometimes is uh, project our gift onto somebody else or vice versa. We compare ourselves. And when we compare ourselves, it's easy to think, well, uh, everybody should have my gift or I wish I had theirs. When I was in high school, uh, I played basketball. You probably read about me. Um, And uh, (laughs) I was a point guard because I had a skill set and a height that lent itself to being a point guard. Now, one of two things could happen. I could say, well, everybody should play point guard. The guy who's on our team who's 6 foot 10 should play point guard. And everybody should just play point guard because it's the best position. Or I could say, you know what? I wish I could play center. I think I'm going to play center. I think me at 5'11 could be a great center, and I'll get no rebounds, and I'll get pushed around. And the reality is you need both to function on a team. I can either say this is the way that I'm I'm going to want everybody to be a point guard like me, or I can say, nope, I wish I was a center. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good, I would call her. This is how it looks in the body of Christ. A little old school hip hop for you there. I try to emulate someone who is gifted, even though I don't have that same gift. And you know what happens? I end up feeling inferior. Or I go, well, somebody else should do what I do. And then I end up feeling superior. And neither of those is healthy. Paul says each of us has a unique role to play. That's why Paul says each of us. My focus should be where my role is when it comes to spiritual gifts. And if I compare myself to others, then I either become discouraged that I don't have their gifts or I become proud because they don't have mine. Paul says, no, no, no. Each of us has been given a gift. Can I just tell you something? Some of you have uh, gifts that I don't have and vice versa. And here's what what it looks like. Someone like me, uh, I I have one gift. That's it. I've always been able to talk. And just use words. I don't know anything else. I just know words. The temptation for someone that is in my position is to go, part of, part of my gift is to, is to read and study and get new ideas and new information and, and figure out words and ways to communicate that. And it can be easy for someone in my position to make other people feel guilty because they don't know the Bible. And the truth is, you don't have to know the Bible the way I know the Bible. You just need to obey the parts you do know. Others of you, your gift is helping and serving, and and you show up to community serve day, and you're like, how come everybody isn't doing this? But that's your gift. And we can project our gift onto other people. And the truth is, I'm just responsible for my gift, you're responsible for yours, and we shouldn't compare to each other. The second thing to remember is this. 
we are each responsible to use our unique gift for the benefit of the whole. We've got to put it into use. It's one thing to have it. It's another thing to use it. Paul says God gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers as gifts to the church. And in many churches, people see the pastor and the staff as sort of the ones who are gifted and the ones who are in ministry. But I can just tell you, the reality is, Paul says, everyone is in ministry. My role as a pastor is simply to equip God's people to do the work of ministry. That means I create environments where everybody else's gifts can flourish. Some of you have the gift of generosity. Some of you have the gift of leadership. Some of you the gift of serving others. Some of you the gift of hospitality and the church. This team, this family, this body isn't complete without your unique role and your unique contribution. It's all of us and it's each of us. My unique role contributes to the whole. Our unity is strengthened by our diversity. So each of us needs to play our part. So let me ask you this, where can you get personally involved? Where has God gifted you where you can take your unique gifts and contribute them to the whole? This weekend, we have uh, about 140 uh, middle school, high school, and leaders at a retreat, which is awesome. Uh, Typically, on a Sunday, we'll have about 70 middle schoolers back here. On Wednesday nights, it started out of the school year with like, you know, 90 students, and then 100 students, and then 120 students, and then 140 students. And on Wednesday nights, 6th through 12th graders take over this building. And every one of those environments has people who have stepped up and said, I'll volunteer. I will serve. I, I feel like this is an area that I can contribute. And maybe for some of you, you'd say, you know what? I could step into that because we always need more leaders for middle school and high school students. Every weekend all around this building, from uh, birth all the way through fifth grade, there are groups taking place of kids who are learning about Jesus. And here's our, here's our passion is Parents, you're the biggest spiritual influence in the life of your kids. So all we want to do is partner with you, and we want to set the anchor of God's love deep in the heart of your kids when they're young, so that when they get older, here's what they know. God created me, God loves me, and I can trust him with my life. And we just want to reinforce what you're teaching them at home. But to do that, it takes a whole bunch of leaders and volunteers who will say, you know what, I can contribute in that way. I'll take some time, and I'll pour into the lives of students, and I'll pour into the lives of kids, and and I will figure out my unique gift mix, and I will use that to contribute to the whole. Maybe for some of you, you'd say, this is the time for me to get involved. This is the time for me to become a kid's leader or a student leader. Or maybe you'd say this, next week we're doing auditions for the music team, and maybe you have a gift of playing an instrument or singing, and, and you go, you know what, I would love to help lead people into worship. I would encourage you to check out the auditions next Sunday. Because this is an opportunity for you to go, you know what? I think I have a unique gift that can be contributed. I, I want to be a part of that. Whatever that is, whatever it looks like for you, find that role and contribute. Because the reality is this. My unique role contributes to the whole. But it's our responsibility to employ it, to use it, and to put it into practice. Here's the fourth thing Paul would say about unity. Unity fuels our maturity. If you want to grow to become more and more like Jesus, you cannot do it by yourself. 
You can't do it in isolation. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, he would say, right? It, it doesn't mean agreement in all things. It's a commitment to a behavior that says, I'm going to live in love and peace. I'm going to put that at the forefront of my relationships. And by the way, unity isn't something we have to create. It's actually something God created, and we simply work to maintain what God has established. However, that doesn't mean we're all the same. We're a beautiful symphony of different notes playing together in harmony. We each play our role as part of the whole. And then when we do that, Paul says, here's what happens. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The, the end result of being healthy and growing and mature is that we love like Jesus loves. A commitment to unity actually fuels our maturity. It's very difficult to become spiritually mature in isolation. And here's why. The message of Jesus is all about how we treat one another. There's all kinds of one another commands all throughout the New Testament about how we live out Jesus' command. Do you know what is required to follow all of the one another's? Another. That's what's required. You can't do it by yourself. You can't do it in isolation. And throughout the scriptures, we're reminded we cannot do it alone. We're reminded that when we drift from people of faith, we drift from faith. Because we all hit, need to know, and need to grow moments. And the Apostle Paul addresses both of these in these verses. A need to know moment is this. There's something about following Jesus that you don't know and you need to know. Further information is required. If you don't have peace and unity in the body of Christ, then where do you go to have an informed faith? Paul would say practicing and striving for and making every effort to work towards unity affords you the ability to grow in your knowledge of God's Son. It helps you to become mature. When you need more information about following Jesus, you now have a group of people. And, and you won't believe every new teaching and every new doctrine that comes your way because you have unity with a group of people to help inform your faith. When you have questions, things I don't know. Hey, as I'm following Jesus, here's something I haven't learned yet. Here's something I need to know. I've got a question about how do I handle this or how do I handle that? And when you have a group of people, that unity fuels your maturity. Now, we also all hit need to grow moments. What's a need to grow moment? A need to grow moment is when you don't need more information. You know exactly what God wants you to do. You don't want to do it. A need to grow moment is this. Uh, I, there's something I know Jesus wants me to do, and I know I should do it, but I don't want to. You know you need to forgive, but you're struggling to move past it, to move past the hurt. You know you need to be generous, but you're fearful. It fights against your self-preservation. You know you need to serve, but your life has kind of started to revolve around you. You know loving like Jesus would require some kind of sacrifice on your part, and you're just not sure you're ready. But when you're in community with other people, they can help push and encourage and instill courage in somebody who knows you and can speak the truth in love to help you become more and more like Christ so that you grow and mature. And a commitment to unity fuels that maturity. 
Maturity allows us to speak the truth in love, not speak the truth in pride. And unfortunately, there are too many followers of Jesus that might have the right message, but don't have the right delivery. And Paul says maturity is how we learn to speak the truth in love. Because you can be right, and you can write somebody right out the door. That doesn't mean that it helps them to grow. When you realize all that God has done for you, you make every effort to keep yourselves united, you bind yourselves together with peace, you realize, I can deliver truth to someone, not out of a desire to be proven right, but because this will actually benefit them. And I want them to grow. Maturity recognizes I'm willing to set my preferences aside for the benefit of another. Paul says, when each part does their part, the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. In other words, we start to emulate that single command of Jesus to love others as I have loved you. Make every effort. Keep yourselves united, binding yourselves together with peace. Be humble, be gentle, be patient with each other, make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. One final thought before we close. You don't go to this church. You are this church. You don't go to Westbridge Church. You are Westbridge Church. You don't go to this church. You are this church. Now, I I want that to shift some of our thinking just a little bit today. I get that when someone asks you, what church do you go to? You answer, I go to Westbridge Church, right? (laughs) I mean, that makes sense. You're not going to be, hey, what church do you go to? I am. (laughs) That doesn't work, right? It doesn't quite work. But if we are the living, breathing, walking temples of God, then we don't go to church. We are the church. And if we are the church, that means Westbridge doesn't exist simply to meet our needs and meet our preferences. We don't work only to get our needs met. We are the church. You and I are the church, and we exist for the world to point others around us to the love and grace and mercy of Jesus that tears down walls and invites them to be a part of this family. The Jesus that has done for them what he has done for us. What we do here on Sundays is so important. What we do here is is vital, it's critical, but at the end of the day, what we do here on Sundays is the locker room. This is where you come in and you get the pep talk and you get the game plan and then we go out into the world and we be the church. Church begins when service ends. That's the reality, that we would be the church each and every day of our lives. So let's saturate our homes. Let's saturate our families. Let's saturate our community with the love of Jesus every day of the week. And let's be committed to unity even when, and especially when, we don't agree on all things, when we don't see eye to eye. Let's let our behavior and the way that we treat one another when we disagree point people to the love of Jesus, and let's contribute. Let's, let's take the gifts and the talents and the unique role that God has created us to have, and let's contribute that to the, role, uh, to the whole. And as we grow, we'll become more and more mature like Jesus. And the mark of maturity is that we love well. And if you've never said yes to that invitation to be a part of God's family, I want to invite you. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, maybe a great next step today would be this. You know what? There's someone that I need to forgive. I need to take a next step. I know God's asking me to do something, and I need to do it. For others of you, it's, you know what? I need to get involved in community because I I come on Sunday mornings, but I don't know very many people here, so I need to get more involved in community. For others of you, it's this. I love being a part of this church, but I I want to contribute. I want my unique role to be a part of the whole. And so maybe it's time for you to join a serving team. And you can just check that box in your connection card or in the Church Center app in your dashboard. 
And others of you, it's this. You've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family. And Jesus came into this world to reconcile us back to God, to make sure that the relationship that was broken between us and God and us and each other could be restored. And so Jesus came into our world. He allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. That means death is not the end. There is more to this life than this life. And you and I have been invited. And it isn't based on anything you've done or haven't done. It's based on what God has done for you. And if you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you to do that by just agreeing with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm grateful that you've never walked away from me. And so I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us who are doing our best to follow you each and every day. God, I pray that we would understand what unity looks like, that it's not uniformity or agreement, but it's that we love well. And God, I pray that we would each take our unique role and we would contribute it to the body of Christ. And as we do, continue to build us up, that we would become mature, that we would love as you have loved us. And may the way that we love each other point people to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.